going to jump straight into our teaching for today. We'll have some announcements at the end. But I have a question for you as you're here today. How do you know the things that you know? You think about what does it mean to know something? Thanks, man. And how do you know it? If somebody were to ask you, what are you most certain of? What would you say? And if they were to ask you that very same question, well, how do you know that? How would you explain that to them? I'm just going to hold that question in your mind. We'll come back to it. C.S. Lewis describes three conditions that need to be present for a successful voyage for a fleet. He says, first, the ships must not run into each other. There's a bunch of boats sailing in the water. They can't be just running up against each other. They'll never get anywhere. He says the second thing is that the boats themselves need to be able to move. They need to be either able to be powered and to uh, sail by steam or, you know, by power, by electrical power, or they need to be able to sail. They have to be what he says calls seaworthy. And the third thing that he says is that there must be a destination in mind for a successful voyage. Right? We can all drift on the water, and the water will take us to and fro. But in order to get to where we are trying to go, we have to have a destination in mind that we have to uh, calculate and take the proper measurements and steps towards reaching that destination. Lewis describes this as a, a healthy society and culture. And again, this is a simplistic image, but I think it's helpful for understanding our own lives in our own culture. And today we're going to look at the way that our own culture does not meet the first condition because the second and the third, that which often our lives are not seaworthy uh, by their own default standards and settings, and which in our culture there's often confusion about what is the destination that we are trying to reach. And we're going to look how our culture and society often doesn't offer us much in the way of, of a uh, proper, successful voyage because of the things that are going on. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote this book. It's a big book, but it's a brilliant book called A Secular Age. And really, this book just kind of analyzes the, our world, tracing it back 500 years. And the central premise of the book is essentially this. If you were alive in the 16th century, there'd be very little way for you not to believe in God. It would be so wrapped up in the culture that you lived in that it would just be part of your deal. Now, you may be kind of a skeptical person. You may be uniquely wired where you'd be like, yeah, I'm not sure I believe all this. But culturally, you would almost have to just kind of go with the flow. And he says that is so drastically and radically changed. Now, he's not making value judgments on this. He's not saying that one is better than the other. He's just trying to say, this is the way our culture looks. And in analyzing our culture, one of the uh, ways that he describes our culture, he says that our world, as in Western culture, which I know one of the beautiful gifts is, not everybody in here is from Western culture. So I want to make that very, very uh, specific in this way. You may be from a different cultural background that I'm kind of describing, but not quite. I pray you'll give me a little bit of leeway and transposition, you know, kind of analyze your own culture, but I'm so glad you're here. But the world that we are walking in right now is so formed by these things. And he says that our culture features this kind of, you know, this, this uh, feature is that it is a part of the age of authenticity. And I want to just kind of run down some different facets of the age of authenticity. So the first thing, 
There's no adherence to broader societal morals. Now, again, I want to say this so clearly. He is describing this as a way of sort of analyzing our world. He is not making value judgments. I think sometimes, especially when we talk about some imagined past, and we start talking about uh, the way things used to be, it can sort of be assumed that we're saying it was so much better back then. That's not always what's going on. Now, there are so many things that have transpired over the last several hundred years that have been absolute good things. You know, a lot of this stuff was wrapped up in a world of slavery and dehumanization and abuse. There are things that have happened in our culture and in our world that are good things, even though they may not be a part of this, uh, you know, past that we are talking about. But he says, one of the things that has shifted in the age of authenticity is that there's no longer an appeal to broader societal morals. Now, again, there's so many reasons for this, but he's saying this is one of the things. Second, uh, no adherence, you can put that second one up, to societal values or expectations. So he's basically saying there's not an accepted way to live. And you think about it, like in our culture, the age of authenticity. Be yourself. Be your best self. Nobody can tell you who to be. You have to figure that out. That has to come from within. Again, that's all that narrative is trying to tell us. Now, next one. Nothing received from previous generations. Now, of course, we know this is not true because you wouldn't be here if not for previous generations. But the idea that we, whatever generation we identify with, whether you're a millennial or Gen Z or you're Gen X, thank you, Gen Xers, you're always ignored. I'm so sorry about that. But wherever you're coming from, you know that you had to make it up on your own. And in many ways, you're just trying not to be like the generation that came before you. And lastly... There's not accepted broader political or religious values. Now, again, I am not saying, I want to make this so clear, I am not saying that these are inherently positive. Oftentimes, we have this kind of fragmenting, these different perspectives on these different things because of the diversity that's present in our society, because of the ways that even social media has elevated voices. You think of like the Me Too movement. Something is so powerful that was just started by people telling their stories, but because technology had evolved to where they had a platform to say, this is my story, this began to cascade and avalanche. And so again, not saying that these are inherently negative or positive. It's just kind of like when David Foster Wallace tells us, this is water. This is the world that we live in and analyzing that. Alan Noble writes of this age of authenticity that we find ourselves in. He says, a central purpose of a well-functioning society, kind of the society that Lewis describes with his three ships, is to promote human flourishing or to help people achieve the good life. You know, this was kind of the foundational document. Like we hold these truths to be self-evident that you know, people can pursue these things, right? But it is difficult to promote human flourishing when flourishing looks different for literally every single person. The best we can do is help each other live authentically. To live authentically means to justify your own existence, to express your identity, to interpret meaning for yourself, to judge according to your own moral compass, and to belong where and only you choose. So how do you know the things that you know? And how do you know that? These are important questions in a world such as our own because the script that we are handed often is that we have to kind of build it up for ourselves. 
Now, we're going to get into, I think, how Paul kind of examines this, lays this mentality on the table here in Ephesians 4. We've been in this series on the book of Ephesians, and I, I don't know about you, I have been really blessed to see how Ephesians has kind of brought all these different issues to the fore. Uh, it's been a real gift to me to kind of, you know, as, as we kind of look ahead to the different weeks to see like, oh, that's coming. Okay, that's going to be an interesting uh, thing to kind of wrap our, our arms around. And so I hope that it's been a blessing for you. I hope it's been challenging for you. Um, I know I've, I've found myself receiving each week with a new sense of, of challenge and anticipation and wonder at what God is wanting to do as his word takes root in our midst. And today we have Paul issuing a stark contrast between the former ways of those who now trust in Jesus. And he sort of, in doing that, he sort of talks about the world that they are coming from and the new way in following Jesus. What I want to do is just kind of walk through this passage verse by verse as we've been doing. And to help unpack some of these things as we sort of ask that question and hopefully answer it. How do we know? Paul begins in verse 17. Therefore, I tell you, and I insist in this in the Lord, that you should no longer walk like the Gentiles walk in the meaninglessness of their thinking. Verse 17, for Paul, a devout Jew, to speak of one's walk was to speak of the totality of one's way of living. A walk determines a way of being in the world, a destination. And in the case of Jesus, he calls us to follow him. So a walk is not just about the way that we live. It's about who we are walking with and who we are following. Paul says that there are two diverging paths that are being presented to us, two diverging walks. One, the way of the Gentiles, and one, the way of truth. Now, it's important for us to understand, Paul's contrast with the walk of the Gentiles is important for us today. For Paul, the Gentiles encapsulate the pagan world that does not know Jesus as Lord. And so Paul, it is, is, it's important for us to see here that Paul can condemn the way that they are walking and the destination that it leads to without condemning the people themselves. Did you hear me? Paul can condemn the way that people are walking and some of the inherent flaws in that way and the destination that it will lead to without condemning the people themselves. And it's important for us, too, here in Ephesians to understand only now, we are four chapters into Ephesians, only now has Paul begun to analyze the wider world. Thus far, through the better part of Ephesians, he's been describing the riches of the grace of Christ, the radical transformation, the new community that has been brought forth that merges the life of Jew and Gentile together in this radical new humanity. Paul has been describing blessing upon blessing. And only now, in a way of saying, don't go back to your former ways, is he saying, look, there is some poverty in the life that you were living formerly. Don't go back there. Paul is not passing judgment on the Gentiles as if they are somehow unable to trust in Jesus. But he is passing judgment on some of the things in their way of life. Now, Paul's words may seem a bit harsh in a culture like ours, right? an age of authenticity, be your best self. Our culture often doesn't uh, have the vocabulary and ability to distinguish between condemning someone's choices and condemning that person themselves. 
but I hope that we will see that if we can maintain this important distinction, Paul is both calling us to walk in the path of life for our own sakes, but also for the sake of the world. That if we, the people who follow the way of Jesus, who have received this call to be his daughters and sons, if we receive the riches of that, then our life, both individually and collectively, will be a sign to the world that there is another way, that there is a better way. And we only fail at that call when we as Christians start behaving like the world, when we start trying to acquire the things that the world is after, when we seek political power, or when we seek our own way and advantage. We start behaving like the empire. We start behaving like political parties. Then we in many ways, forsake our birthright. Now, Paul makes some judgments of the wider culture that I think are instructive for us today. First, Paul says in this verse 17, he says, the Gentiles, again, the pagans, those who are not trusting in the way of Jesus at this point, walk in the meaninglessness of their thinking. Now, again, we can, I know when we read the Bible, often even in public, it just kind of like, kind of flies over us, but that is a, that's a pretty harsh judgment. The meaninglessness of their thinking. The Greek word translated meaninglessness is, here is the same word that's translated in the book of Ecclesiastes as vapor. Paul is saying that when you chase after pleasure, whether it be individual self-fulfillment, whether you chase after power or the empty philosophies of this world, you are literally chasing the wind and your thinking becomes futile. Notice that the focal point throughout this passage for Paul will be on the mind. The mind is where thinking takes place. Here the word for mind from the Greek word nous refers to the capacity to think, plan, and make moral judgments and lifestyle choices. This could also be described as a set of worldview assumptions that guide non-Christian Gentiles in their thoughts about life and how they live in light of those convictions. Our mind is not just our capacity to reason. It has so much to do with our will, so much to do with the way that we live and inhabit the world. Now, there were groups in this time who had a deep and profound treasure trove of wisdom. Groups like the Stoics. And if they were listening in to Paul as he's saying, you're, you're, you're futile in your thinking, your thoughts are meaningless, they'd be like, excuse me? We are living in the way of wisdom. We're the ones who are darkened in our understanding. But Paul is not saying that there are no great deposits of wisdom throughout the wider culture. Paul himself will quote from Stoic poetry uh, on Mars Hill in Acts 17 and appeal to the things that are already present in the culture. Paul is not saying that there's nothing good to be found in the world that is outside. No, Paul is making a theological judgment that only walking in the way of Jesus provides solidity and meaning to our lives. This is the prayer of Psalm 1. That blessed is the one who walks and delights in the way of the Lord. They will be like a tree planted by streams of water, something solid, something vibrant, something growing. But not so is the one who walks in the way of the wicked. They will be like chaff spread in the wind. Paul is saying to us, we, we receive this way of Jesus, and oftentimes our mind is the focal point. But to receive this way in our mind is to begin to walk in the way of Jesus. It has to move from our brain to our body and to the way that we live and inhabit the world. And I think it's so important that we see that Paul's focus here is the mind, because as we will see, 
in just ways that are providential and beautiful. Modern neuroscience has discovered much that seems to reinforce the ways that we are formed and the points that Paul is illustrating here. Now, Paul goes on in verse 18. In describing the Gentiles, he says that they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life that comes from God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Again, we are focused here on the mind, understanding. But now Paul brings in the language of the heart. Paul says that this hardness of heart is due to ignorance. But what is in view here is not ignorance as if someone doesn't know or they can't know or they haven't been told. What Paul is sort of describing here is willful ignorance. Essentially, you don't want to know, right? Anybody have those things? It's like, okay, I want to open my bank account app now. Do I really want to know or would I rather just like take a chance, swipe the card? Approved! Sometimes we just don't want to know. Or like when the mechanic takes you through, it's like, let me show you some things. It's like, yeah, bro, I'm good. I'm not going to understand anything you're saying to me anyway. So all this is based on fear. I would rather live in the ignorance, the bliss of my car starting until it doesn't. Paul's judgment may seem harsh here. He says that they are separated from the life that comes from God, but to harden one's heart is to array one's will against God's. It is to resist. Hardening of hearts in the scriptures is a spiral where each decision forms further calluses and further deforms us. In this great book, The God-Shaped Brain, medical doctor and neuroscientist Timothy Jennings writes, Neurologically speaking, as Paul brings in the language of the heart, the heart is the anterior cingulate cortex, or the ACC. It is the brain region where we experience empathy, compassion, and love, and where we choose the right from the wrong. And he goes on to say, those who persist in the unhealthy, what he calls sinful, selfish course, despite the firing of the conscience, which is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and the orbital frontal cortex. I actually called my, one of my best friends, who is a neuroscience professor at Belmont, just to check my work here. And, you know, talking about blissful ignorance, sometimes I have called him and been real excited about the discipleship ramifications of something I was reading. And he just basically says to me, that's wrong. And I have a decision to make at that point. Do I know that that's wrong or did I just not hear him correctly? But thankfully for this particular uh, work, he was like, yeah, yeah, that, that tracks. That's, that's mostly tracking. So if you're a specialist in here, which often happens in Princeton, New Jersey, take it up with him. Now, he says that the, the, the VMPC and the uh, OFC may find greater difficulty extricating themselves from the destructive behaviors. And what he's describing here is just the spiral of a hardness of heart. Then when we make these decisions, it rewires our brain. And our brains have this plasticity to them, which can be both destructive and deformative and also reparative and beautiful. And as we think about this kind of idea, this hardness of hearts, this, this notion of, of a culture that is darkened in their understanding. I, can't, I frankly cannot think of much better verses to describe the responses that I've seen to some of the political events here in the U.S. the last couple of days. Now, friends, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. I do talk about the things that are going on politically. If you, if you just don't want to hear that, that's okay. There's coffee out there. You can have an excuse to walk out. I, I totally understand that you may be inundated with this. Now, this week, we saw a couple things go on, and I want to just unpack these briefly. 
We saw the Supreme Court send the issue of abortion back to the state level in the Dobbs case, which effectively overturns Roe versus Wade. Now, I want to say a few things on this because I think it vitally illustrates so much about what God is wanting to do in and through us, in a people that have received the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus. First, I want to say a couple things. If you've had a, a miscarriage or you you've yourself have had an abortion, you know, and, and you're kind of dealing with this narrative and just talking about things and things are being lobbed in all these different ways. And these are very different uh, experiences. But if you've had a miscarriage in here and you've been sort of triggered by this whole discussion about when does the life start? And you're like, I have, I have experienced that. And I know the pain and suffering that I have felt there. And if that's you, I just, God aches with you. He's here, present, healing, drawing near. And I just want to say God sees that. For, for those of you who maybe you've had an abortion, like, that is not the unpardonable sin, okay? And so if you're here today and you're like, I don't know what to do with all of this. I, I hear people saying that I'm a, a, a murderer and a killer. Like, can I just say, like, you are welcome here. And, and God wants to do a work in your life. But, but as best as I can grasp, you know, I I've, I've, I've certainly understand that throughout history, women have been often subjugated, demeaned, abused, and treated as property. And that is always and unequivocally wrong. No matter what form abuse takes, it is wrong. Let me say that to you. Whether it's in a relationship here and you need to repent, whether that's in a broader societal construct, it is wrong. Now, I grasp that as best as I am able, because I am a man. And it's antithetical to the vision of the scriptures uh, for women. But if we truly believe, and I think this is one of the things, the expressions of the age of authenticity that we've seen so viscerally, if we truly believe that our only way to ensure that women are not treated in these ways is to allow absolute freedom to end the life of a, uh, a baby in the womb, then is that the best response that we can come up with? is essentially to kill, then are we not hardened of heart and darkened in our understanding? Now, I understand, friends, I want to offer several more caveats. There are several important uh, caveats, unique scenarios that involve the, saving the life of the mother, that involve abuse and rape. And my comments certainly don't apply without any nuance to those scenarios. But so often, as I've seen the response, and I've seen people pour into the streets, it's essentially just like, either we can do this at our whim, or it is, it is subjugation. And I'm like, don't we have a better imagination than that? Don't we, as the people of God, have a better imagination than that? Now, on a separate issue, the Supreme Court also ruled on the issue surrounding gun control this week. Again, the same script often applies, and I think that we can see these threads that hold these things together. For proponents of the Second Amendment who claim that its sole focus is to ensure that the citizenry is adequately armed to deter any kind of governmental tyranny, that even in the face of assault rifles capable of killing dozens of people in minutes, then on the heels of the white supremacist killer in Buffalo and the demonic killing of several women and children in Uvalde, Texas, that nothing should be done to curb that freedom, that absolute freedom is the only answer. Are we not hard of heart and darkened in our understanding? Do you see the thread? The age of authenticity says freedom is the ultimate good. And Ecclesia, I'm not both sizing you here. What I'm trying to illustrate is the absolute poverty of the narratives of the right and left to bring about understanding and truth and justice. 
And I think the only thing that I can think to do is just to start with lament. And to start with the church. Paul says elsewhere, he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. So often we are pointing at everybody else and God is saying, what about this? verse 19, Paul says, people like them, because they are callous, have given themselves over to self-indulgence to accomplish every form of impurity with an insatiable desire for more. Can, can I say that this makes sense to me? That, that, that if you're darkened in your understanding, if, if there's a sense of meaninglessness that guides your thinking, like just this sense of like, well, what else is there to do? This is sort of the theme of Ecclesiastes. Like he's like, listen, like, I can't find any broader purpose to life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But oftentimes, we're, when we kind of live in this world that feels untethered, when we live in this world that feels like it has no guiding story, no destination for the ships to sail to, we start looking within. How can I fill this insatiable desire for more? How can I fill this hole in my heart? And we try to do it with small things. Again, this, this makes sense to me, and maybe for some of you today. You're just feeling that. The only response to living in this kind of world, according to Paul, is to try to fill that God-given desire for congruence, for wholeness, for truth. It is to pursue the whims of the flesh, which only degrades our life more. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, living out of the shallow satisfaction of our flesh only leads to slavery and death. Friends, if I were to offer a bit of a summary of this striking judgment that Paul has rendered upon not only his culture, but I think on ours, it would be that neither our conscience in its default mode, neither our default settings, nor our culture with its answers can bring to us what Jesus offers us. Jesus will say, I am the way, the walk, the truth, the understanding, and the life. Paul says it this way, In Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 21, he says, You did not learn Christ in the ways of the world. You did not learn Christ by just evolving in your understanding. No, since you heard him and you were taught in him, since there is truth in Jesus, we did not learn Christ through our own consciences, though they can be a signpost along the way. We did not learn Christ through our culture, though there are glimpses of God's fingerprints all over it. No, we learn Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, that because of Jesus' love for us, that he has saved us, he has chosen us, he has rescued us, he has adopted us as his own. He has given us an inheritance, a deposit of the Holy Spirit that is here and present now, confirming that we are God's children, and that that inheritance will be brought into its full completion when God makes all things new. We have been set in a family, a new creation family, from every tongue and tribe and nation, and in our culture, from every socioeconomic background, from every race and ethnicity, from every political persuasion. Jesus has saved us. This is the truth of who we are. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, the only response to that is to believe it. The only thing you have to do to take a step into that is to say, yes, it, that Jesus is the Lord of my life, that I no longer live out of my selfish desires. I no longer know the things I think I know because I have experienced them or I have made them up in my mind, but I receive them as the word of God, the very grace of his truth and life. 
He says, Paul, in verse 22, you were taught to put away your old self that corresponds to your former manner of life that is corrupt in accordance with deceitful desires. Here Paul reiterates that the, the, the old way of li living, whether of our own deceitful desires or whether the way that our culture sort of pushes us in its default mode, we can put that off like dirty rags. It is no longer the attire of the new kingdom living that we have been invited to. Notice he says, put off our own old selves, not the old selves of our culture, not the old selves of our neighbor. Paul's instructions here, his, his judgments and discernments here are not an invitation to go around looking for sinfulness in everybody else's life. And then Paul then, again, because he's a good preacher, offers a promise. He says, when we put off our old self and we receive the new self in Jesus, we will receive renewal in the spirit, or by the Spirit in our mind. Now, a lot of translations say that we will be renewed in the Spirit of our minds. Um, I think a better translation is that this is actually the work of the Spirit of God, that the, the S should be capitalized, renewed by the Spirit of God in our minds. Again, notice that the mind is the frontier. And one of the observable physical manifestations of the grace and mercy of God is what neuroscientists call neuroplasticity. The notion that a healthy brain will continue to rewire to grow and be nurtured. The notion that even if you've been going one way, you've been walking in hardness of heart, darkness of understanding, that as you turn towards the good, as God's grace begins to get a hold of our mind in the way that we live and decisions that we make, that it actually slowly and patiently, because God walks slowly and patiently, he is the three mile an hour God, and it begins to rewire our brain. The good news is that many brain regions remain changeable throughout life, due to this condition. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul invites us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And from a biological standpoint, the mind is the seat of what we literally refer to as the mind, as well as the heart, our will. It is not simply that we begin to think rightly, although it's not, it's not less than that, but that the Spirit wants to impart the truth in all of its force into our lives, that we see ourselves as beloved that we would know that we are God's children, that this gives us access to the King of heaven who loves us and wants to see us filled with joy, flourishing, and purpose, that even our sins are nothing to fear or hide from God because he has already lavished his grace upon us to restore and to redeem us. To repent means literally to change your mind. And this, when we see God this way, when we begin to know that this is who God is, this begins to rewire our brain. This begins to rewire and reshape the way that we respond in the world. Timothy Jennings writes, he says, when the Holy Spirit is involved, the prefrontal cortex, the place where we rationalize and reason and make decisions and the place of our creative thinking, the prefrontal cortex becomes healthier. The ability to reason improves and love, compassion, and empathy grow stronger. He says in another place, he says, it is in our prefrontal cortex that we experience healthy love, compassion, altruism, empathy, reasoning capacity, judgment, the ability to worship, conscientiousness, morality, and the ability to plan, organize, and problem solve. Paul has told us to put off the old self 
by the grace that God invites us into and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's verse 24. And so what do we do with all of this? How do you know the things that you know? How do you begin to understand that God is wanting to rewire and reshape your brain? Paul gives us a very simple instruction, something that you did today without even thinking about it. And I thank you. You got dressed. We're so grateful to you for that. It would be an awkward conversation if you didn't. And Paul uses this illustration so effortlessly because it is a part of the way that we begin to step into this new kingdom reality. Simply the act of putting off our old self, this continuous act, this act of putting on the new self is as life-changing but as simple as getting up in the morning and putting on your clothes. That as God begins to work his new creation power in our lives, It's as simple as him showing up in our lives every day and reminding us of who we are, reminding us of how we are to live in the world, how we are to give of ourselves as Jesus did. And friends, as Paul uses this simple metaphor, in Ephesians 6, he will say it's it's actually this this new suit, this new self you've been given actually is built for, for combat too. But it's not combat against Whatever you've determined is the political party. You know, I love what Anne Lamott says. You can safely know that you've made God in your image when God hates all the same people that you do. And if that's your political approach, then perhaps you need to change your way of thinking. But what Jesus has invited us to is the daily act of putting on the new self. And friends, I just want to invite you in a way of promise, like Paul says it here, that the Holy Spirit himself will renew our minds, that God is going to do a work in us that helps us to know the things that we know because God is present. And it's not just about having the truth and living out of the self-righteousness of that. It's about living in the way and the truth and the life, the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus' way of inhabiting the world for the life of ourselves and the world. And so I simply want to invite you, very simple practice this week, as a way of receiving this promise, as you get dressed, simple phrase, put on the new self. You know those times you look in the mirror and you're like kind of adjusting things? Put on the new self. The way that we've been given to know the things that we know is by God's very words to us. And so often we've sort of flipped the script on this. We, we think we know the things that we know because of our experience or our story. And Jesus is saying, I've given you a newer, truer story that doesn't discount all that came before, but invites you into the new, restored, resurrected life that I have for you right now. And it's as simple as stepping in daily to the love that God has for you. Put off your former self and put on the new self. And so as you get dressed for, for bed, put on the new self. As you get dressed tomorrow to go to work or to, to, to be with family, put on the new self. This is the life that Jesus has for us. We are no longer slaves, as we sang, to the old ways of being, but we are invited into God's newness. Jesus, when he speaks truth, it's one of the most profound things about him. He doesn't just say it. 
Now, I know oftentimes we experience the disconnect, and I know this is something for many of us, between our words and our actions. But Jesus is truth as an embodied truth. And it's another like simple daily practice that we rarely think about, practice of eating. Jesus had this very subtle way of bringing the kingdom, ways that we often think should be much flashier and much bigger, and yet here he is, put on the new self, sit down to a table. And each Sunday we gather around this table to remember Jesus' body broken for us. And to receive his blood poured out for us. Again, these metaphors often stretch our daily language. But as we come to this table, we can answer that question, how do we know the things that we know? Because Jesus died for us. Because that is not a way of compressing down into a small truth, but actually opens us up to the truth of the one who made the world, who wired it in all of its fantastic and beautiful and wondrous ways that we are invited to know, to inhabit, and to love by putting on the new self. So today I want to just simply invite you to this table. And I want to say a few things about that. First of all, if you're here today and you, for whatever reason, don't want to come, it is okay. Nobody will be looking at you as you sit in your seat. It's completely okay. But you are invited. Everybody is welcome at this table because it is Jesus' table. He invites the whole world. I also want to say if you have a gluten allergy, there's gluten-free bread up here as you can come and receive. I want to invite those serving communion today to come forward.